welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Toria Bono. And today, Tiny Voice is talking about avoiding teacher burnout, something that we've touched on in other episodes, but something that's going to be a real focus for this one. And I'm joined today by Steve Waters. So welcome, Steve. Thank you, Toria. I'm so pleased that you've come on here to talk to me about how we can avoid teacher burnout in our profession. But first of all, if anyone hasn't come across you, Steve, who is Steve Waters? I taught for 30 years, <coughs> excuse me, I taught for 30 years in uh, secondary schools, English and uh, drama and led those departments in two different schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I left when I was an assistant principal uh, in my last school to go to uh, two local authorities, one local authority uh, for a maternity cover. And then while I was on the maternity cover, um, a job came up uh, permanently in another local authority as a school uh, consultant for English and literacy. And I worked there for six years mm-hmm. and I've been freelance uh since 2011 uh and my latest um venture is uh, that i set up my own company in 2017 um called the teachwell alliance and then from that company emerged the teachwell toolkit which supports schools to develop a whole school culture of staff mental health Wow. Something that's absolutely, well, it's crucial nowadays. You know, I don't, it it appears to me that we are having to focus more and more on our mental health within our profession. Do you think that's a new thing or do you think we've just realised we need to do it? I mean, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I think focusing on teachers' mental health has always been a necessity, Mm -hmm. but if I think about my own teaching career and teachers nowadays, the profession has changed out of all recognition. When I started teaching, there was no Ofsted. Uh, There was no high stakes accountability. The head teacher knocked on your classroom door before entry. Um, The only visits we used to get from uh, anyone outside the school were from HMI and HMI um, were a different uh, kind of uh, oversight or or inspection, if you like. They were there to provide a kind of a friendly eye on the school and Mm -hmm. to recommend positive uh, strategies that the school could take on or or a department because there were subject HMIs and um, we we welcomed them uh, as opposed to the situation nowadays where there's high stakes accountability in schools. Teachers are not uh, regarded as professionals uh, by the government. They're regarded with suspicion that you have to have uh, an inspection uh, organization like Ofsted in order to make sure the teachers are doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. So 
the professional respect that I got as a teacher when I started teaching is was ent- is entirely different uh, to the lack of respect that teachers have today. And because of a combination of high-stakes accountability, a lack of trust, a lack of respect, a lack of professional um, uh, autonomy, we've got a situation where teachers' mental health is in a very poor condition. And even before the pandemic, teachers were leaving the profession saying that they couldn't cope anymore. Mm. This, um, And it's similarly uh, the case in Canada, uh, in the US particularly, mm. and perhaps less in Australia. Um, but the conditions leading to staff having poor mental health are similar in the UK to the US. It's just a slightly different system, but the yeah. factors that lead to poor mental health are very aligned. Yeah. What you've said makes so much sense. And I remember um, the, the, the damning news reports that were coming out at the height of the pandemic about teachers not pulling their weight and not working hard enough and not doing enough for children, work, you know, working at home, etc. And actually, all my colleagues that I knew, Steve, were working so hard to provide the education that we you know, the best education we could for children that were learning from home. And yet we had news report after news report basically saying we weren't pulling our weight. And I remember, you know, I'm someone that loves our profession. I absolutely adore it. And yet I remember just feeling really despondent about the fact that we could never do the right thing. We just were never doing the right thing in the eyes of the public. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's, uh, stereotype and stigma um, is perpetrated by the media. Yeah. Um, I think if there's one positive to come out of the dreadful conditions of the pandemic, it's that I think parents have gained respect for teachers during the last two years because it's the parents who see what efforts the teachers are 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 putting in in order to mm. carry on um providing their children with education and also that when remote learning has been uh taking place the parents parents who've supported their children uh see what it takes to make sure that learning is effective so i think my, you know, my suggestion to the profession would be to use this as an opportunity to make greater links with parents because the government are not going to listen to teachers. They never have. No. Uh, well, especially this government. And, and so, but they will listen to parents because parents are voters. Mm. So it's, it, you know, it might seem the worst time to get parents on your side, but in fact, I think it's probably, a, um, you know, an, an, unfortunately, an, an opportunity to do so. I think you're absolutely right, you know, because I remember this time last year where suddenly we it was announced that schools weren't opening in January. And I remember, 
you know, myself and all my colleagues having to suddenly sort out a load of learning for the children. And actually, the the parents were so incredibly grateful. They could see the lengths that we had gone to to ensure that on day one, we were there for the children supporting their learning. You know, it wasn't sort of, oh, we've only been given a few, you know, a little, little bit of notice, so we'll get there eventually. We were there immediately as were so many teachers across the land with teaching ready for the children and you know as you say the the parents absolutely recognized it but I want to go back to what you know the main subject that we're talking about today which is avoiding teacher burnout Steve you know the pandemic has really impacted on as you said on teacher mental health and it was already being impacted prior to that, as you so eloquently put it earlier. But, you know, is it just a matter of teachers sorting themselves out to stop burnout? Uh, no, not in my um, not in my view. There is a balance between taking care of yourself mm. and the organisation, the school, taking care of you. Um, and at the moment, the balance is very heavily weighted towards the teacher taking care of themselves. The issue with that is that schools have a duty of care to their employees under the Health and Safety Act, and that duty extends beyond just the physical environment so mm. we're all familiar with uh, the kind of measures that schools and other organizations have to take in order to prevent injury for example so yeah. somebody mops the floor and they have to put a sign out saying you know take care the floors slippery um, and that's become a kind of a, a bit of a joke really about the extent to which you have to go but there's nowhere near the same approach taken towards mental health mm -hmm. um, and part of the reason for that is that teachers are not trained to be mental health professionals they're not even trained to support the mental health of their pupils mm. and <clears throat> it's just assumed that they will be able to to do that, but um, if you look at any uh, teacher training course or leadership course, uh, you'll see that mental health is doesn't figure in the training. And recently, the national professional qualifications for teachers and school leaders were rewritten, and there's not a single mention of mental health anywhere in those qualifications. Wow! Uh, and I think that's a real um a real issue i, yeah. I don't understand it was an opportunity to to rewrite those qualifications it was an opportunity to to put mental health um squarely in place and also mm -hmm. to provide at least a module or two for school leaders to um to create uh, an organisation which had mental health at its core for the staff. There might 
I haven't read all of the qualifications, but I'm pretty sure there will be references to pupil well-being and mental health. Mm-hmm. But my take has always been that you have to put there's a a mantra in in teaching which is almost uh sacred isn't there that you have to put the children first well of course that's why we all went into teaching because we love teaching children and we love watching them learn and grow but if we don't look after the staff if we put the staff last they won't be able to put the pupils first because they will suffer from burnout. So what is burnout? Well, there's uh, someone called Christina Maslach who I feel should be in every teacher training course and leadership course. But Christina Maslach is not that well known in um, education. She's been working on occupational burnout since the 1970s and is regarded as a world expert. So she's devised um, something called um, the Maslach Burnout Inventory, um, which assesses the level of burnout of employees. So she's not specifically looking at schools, um, but her work clearly relates to schools, as I'll point out in a moment. So what she Mm. says about burnout is that there are three key areas that someone who is suffering from burnout will experience. One is emotional exhaustion. So this will lead to being irritable, less patient, permanently being tired, feeling sick, uh, and having an inability to focus on the task at hand. Then a lack of personal accomplishment. So teachers are very prone to blaming themselves or feeling guilty if they're not doing their job. And so self-blame or a lack of confidence, feeling a failure, um, not doing what they're supposed to be doing, that all leads to a lack of personal accomplishment. And then the final um, the final area that is important is depersonalization. Mm-hmm. So this can lead to cynicism, isolation, uh, distancing from work, distancing from colleagues and pupils. And instead of blaming the organization for not looking after them, individual members of staff can start to blame other members of staff or pupils for the way they are feeling. Mm. So those three broad uh, broad areas, emotional exhaustion, personal accomplishment, depersonalization, are all linked to uh, when you're experiencing burnout. So burnout is not feeling tired. Mm. Uh, Burnout is a point at which you cannot continue anymore that you come to a, a a permanent stop and that you've got to get out of the uh, place that you're in so it's common for example for teachers to experience burnout in the classroom where suddenly they might start to 
burst into tears because they can't cope anymore. Yeah. And uh, there's a, a wonderful book called Making It as a Teacher by Victoria Hewitt, who describes doing exactly that. Um, and she had to take considerable time out after it um, and nearly gave up teaching. But somebody said to her, well, why don't you try just one more school before you leave teaching, even if it's on yeah. you know, supply? Uh, and she tried one more school and she's been happy there ever since. She's now head of department. And the, the school was entirely different in the way that it looked after her. Now, she, on her own, by her own admission, she still has challenges, but the difference is that the school is supportive rather than mm. judgmental. Um, so Maslak breaks burnout down into the following uh, components. Uh, so first of all, uh, one of the six factors is work overload. Interestingly, what Maslach says is that workload by itself won't lead to burnout. Mm -hmm. It is workload that is excessive combined with most or all of the other five factors. Yeah. And so if you are respected and happy at work and looked after, then the work that you've been asked to do outside the classroom won't be a decisive factor in your in, in leading to burnout because you are more tolerant of it. That's not to say that we shouldn't look at, at workload. Of course we should, but you're more tolerant of it if the school looks after you generally. And we all know that teaching's hard work and we expect there to be work, you know, both inside and outside the classroom, which is, uh, you know, which is challenging. So work overload, I, I like to use that phrase rather than workload. Yes. So it's the overload that is the, the key. And then another factor is a lack of control. If you have a school leadership that micromanages teachers um, so that you have no or little professional uh, control over your work and your judgments, are generally not asked for, then, and and you make very few decisions about your own work, mm. then lack of control is another factor that can lead to burnout. And then something that we shouldn't really have to comment on, but unfortunately we do, is a lack of reward. Yeah. So when you are working in the school, how many times does somebody stop you and say, oh, that was a great assembly that you took? Or mm. I can see that your, you know, that your class are really uh, engaged and interested and they're learning, you know, a lot. Or, um, you know, thanks for, uh, thanks for driving the minibus last night. It, it doesn't really matter to an extent what, you have done it's it's you know the 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 action that you've carried out or what you've the way that you've gone further than is expected or just that you're doing a good job it it almost doesn't matter what it is provided that somebody recognizes 
you for it. And um, yeah. my view about that is that teachers should be recognised formally and informally. So formally, for example, during the staff briefing or every two weeks, an award gets passed to a teacher who has has done something way above what you would expect, and then that award is passed to somebody else. We all, you know, we're very good at saying we should praise children for what they've done because we know that that's a huge motivator, and we seem to think that when adults, when you get to an adult age, that praise and appreciation is not as needed, but actually it's probably more needed, especially during the pandemic. Oh, I think it's absolutely vital, Steve. I really do. And just, I know myself, when someone just says, thanks for doing that, that was great. Oh my goodness, I can feel myself growing taller in that moment. I, yes, I can. that's right. You know, so I think that that's absolutely vital. And I think schools can be so busy that mm. we forget to say, oh, thanks, that was great. Yeah. Or we think we've already said it. Mm, That's the other thing, you know, I I thought I'd already said, well done, you know, that was wonderful. Um, But it just, that moment has passed. So I think that's really, yeah, really key. Do continue. So point four, I'm writing it all down because this is just fascinating stuff. So the um, number four, these are not in any order, by the way. Number four is uh, lack of community. So Maslach, um, Uh, describes this like this, so I'm quoting her directly. People thrive in community and function best when they share praise, comfort, happiness and humour with people they like and respect. In addition to emotional exchange and instrumental assistance, this kind of social support reaffirms a person's membership in a group with shared values. Mm. So there's an awful lot there, but... If the two things that I want to pick out are happiness and humour, so we often say that happiness is a bit amorphous and, you know, well, yeah, that's very nice, but what does it mean? Uh, well, we don't, we, we mightn't be able to define it very well, but we all know what, what, how we feel when we're happy. And so the question is, how many teachers feel happy when they're at work? And the fewer teachers that feel happy at work indicates that the organisation is not supporting their mental health. And then humour. I often say to people who are going for an interview, and they sometimes ask, well, how do I know what the school is like? And one of the things that I I suggest they look for is humour. So when they go into the staff room or just generally around the school, are people smiling and sharing a joke with yeah. with others? Is the staff room a place where people are engaged in, you know, making each other smile and laugh or is it mm. completely dead and everybody's just working on their own? So the indicators for staff community um, are, I think, fairly visible if you look for them. And then the fifth factor is lack of fairness. Mm-hmm. So is 
there a level playing field for every teacher in the school or do we get a situation often where someone says, well, there's no point in me applying for that because it's got X's name all over it. Mm -hmm. Um, And when, uh, and, and do leaders have favorites, you know, do leaders unconsciously favor one member of staff over another um, and if that happens, then they are seen to be unfair. And then finally, conflict of values. When you enter the teaching profession, you go into it with a certain um, preset of values that you believe you want to impart and live by and work by. But are those values at odds with the school? So, for example, the most common, um, the most common factor here is that the school has high stakes accountability running right through it. But you believe that, that's not the way to treat professionals. So mm. you, your values are at odds with the school. And you can't, um, if all of the other five factors are in place, especially you can't, that, that you won't be able to tolerate that for very long before yeah. it begins to eat away at you and you're not looking forward to going to work anymore and you wish you weren't teaching and so on. So just to summarize the six factors are work overload lack of control lack of reward lack of community lack of fairness and a conflict of values the more factors are the more those factors are in place the more likely it is that you will be creating an organization that leads to staff burnout not just one or two people but a number of people and this is why you get schools where uh, a number of staff leave at the same time. There was, mm. I, I know nothing about the background to this, and I'm not going to mention the school, but I came across a school recently mm. where nine NQTs who had all started together in September left at the end of December. Whoa! Now, if you, it was a large uh, secondary mm. school. Now, if you have that kind of situation, you are creating burnout. You know, those members of staff, I guess, got together and said, we can't tolerate this, you know, yeah. let's get out. And and that should have sent messages. I mean, maybe it did and maybe the schools changed, but it it, it the, there's nothing more um, stark than a number of teachers leaving at the same time to tell you that what you are doing in your school is not good for the staff. So how do school leaders address this so that they are avoiding this teacher burnout and ensuring that, you know, there are certain things they can't necessarily do, such as conflict of values. They they can't ensure that their value system meets every single teacher's value system. But what can they do to ensure that they're giving a, a real balance and and 
sorry, I'm trying, I'm not putting this well, ensuring that they really are putting teacher well-being at the forefront in order to avoid the teacher burnout? Mm. Well, the first thing that they have to do is is to put teachers uh, first, is to say, mm. you know, if our teachers are not in a good place, our pupils won't be in a good place. So if the worst combination is if a school is not treating its staff well and then expects them to put the pupils first. So you you can't, it won't work. It, it just won't happen. Um, but the way that I suggest that schools go about it is that they look at all of those six factors that Maslach identified mm-hmm. and then work on each of them to create a better school in in the sense of supporting their staff. So um, this first of all, you can't you can't take effective action unless you know how the staff feels. And yeah. so the first step is to find out how the staff feels by asking them to complete a survey. Uh, in which all of those six factors will be mentioned. So um, it's very easy to take a sounding simply by asking staff, uh, okay, we'll start with work overload. You know, to what extent do you feel that your workload is manageable Mm. on a scale of 0 to 10? So 0 is completely unmanageable and 10 is completely manageable and get them to to score um, on that particular uh, component of burnout. Um, a tip, if you're doing surveys, if you use Google Forms, Google Forms can be linked to a Google Sheet automatically. You don't even have to create the sheet. Uh, you just click a button. Oh, they're great, aren't they? I love yeah. it. Yeah, and then... The results are fed through to Google Sheet, mm-hmm. um, and but also Google Forms uh, collates the responses, and you can print out the responses in bar chart form. So the work really is creating the survey, um, but if you if you keep it to one question per. Christina Maslach's list of burnout factors, then it, it probably won't take a member of staff much longer than five minutes. And you can then take a sounding. So that's the first step. The second step is having taken a sounding, then you need to know from the staff why the uh, scores are, 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 are as they are. So that then is much more to do with discussing allowing mm. staff to have time to discuss. So you might do this. For, I mean, my suggestion would be that if you really want to, to make a difference, that you launch this in a staff training day because there's nothing more important than well-being and mental health. Yeah. Uh, and um, But you can't do it in you know, a soundbite. You can't, say, spend 20 minutes on it in a, in a staff meeting. It just won't work. Um, you want the staff to give you that impression to then talk about why 
they have given those scores and then what what the school can do about it. Um, there's a bit of a, well, it's not a bit of a myth, it is a myth, that in order to get a good Ofsted inspection judgment, you have to have constant accountability. So um, you do book scrutinies, you drop into teachers' lessons, you do learning mm. walks, um, you do uh, you do marking audits, um, a whole range of things which are all to do about judgments. Um, and th- the biggest uh, critic of um, of Ofsted is, or one of the biggest critics. It, he he was on Twitter, but he uh, he is a PhD student. He might have finished now, and he just didn't have the scope to continue on Twitter. But is a head teacher called Jeremy Hannay, um, who is head teacher of a primary school called Three Bridges in Southall, London. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a chapter in uh, in my book, uh, which is almost a verbatim interview that I ran with him. Um, so uh, it's chapter seven of Cultures of Staff, Wellbeing and Mental Health in Schools. And <clears throat> what Jeremy Hannay s- s- says is that he doesn't he doesn't care about the fancy badge outside his school. Uh, what's important is what's going on in the school on a daily yeah. basis. So he abandoned all forms of high-stakes accountability. So, for example, uh, he moved from pen marking of exercise books to verbal feedback, mm. uh, but he still had the proviso that if you want to mark a set of books, that's for a particular reason, that's absolutely fine. I'm not going to stop you doing that. I'm just saying that you don't need to do it and yeah. that actually verbal feedback is more effective. And then instead of lesson observations, he developed lesson study, uh, or at least he implemented a system of lesson study, which um, is uh, well known but not that used, where two or three teachers get together uh, to be um, a, a kind of a learning group, really, and they invite one another to each other's lessons either to watch something that isn't going well and they want advice on or to watch something that is going well and they're quite proud of. Um, And um, the teachers just ask for cover, uh, which he provides um, to do that. And he doesn't expect them to report back to him at all. It's completely, it's professional development between themselves um, and he has no wish to see uh, proof that they're doing it now when so a lot of heads uh, jeremy's from canada and he's now been i guess over here for about 10 years but mm-hmm. um before he when he first took over the over the school from a deputy heads job he you know other head teachers would say to him, well, you know, that's great, Jeremy, to have a, you know, a happy school. Because he, he used to say, um, ironically, he used to say, this is the happiest school in uh, in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, well, it's all very well to have a happy school, but what happens when Ofsted come? Uh, and he didn't budge. And in July, no, June 2019, um, just... Uh, after the interview, Ofsted came and the school got outstanding in every category. 
Wow. And we're talking here about a school in South Hall with about, I think at the time there's 90% of pupils spoke English as a second language. 30% Mm. of pupils transitioned in and out of the school every year and where it's one of the poorest um, areas in the UK. So Mm. we're not talking about high-flying children who come from wealthy middle-class backgrounds. Um, And he he did lots of other things, such as he wouldn't drill the the, um, pupils for their SATs. All he did was the, 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 the staff taught them how to answer the questions, and then he took the pressure off them by saying, look, you know, we've got to do this test, uh, it's on such and such a day. We're not going to get worried about it because we've been doing this in class all the time. Just do your best. And the yeah. results are phenomenal for the children in that area. So, um, yeah, so he basically gives lie to the, you know, he 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 completely dismisses the view that in order to get good Ofsted results, you have to have staff who are involved in high-stakes accountability. You've got to measure them. You've got to collect results. You've got to ask them for records. Uh, you've got to make sure that they're doing what they're doing. And What I think uh, and- is really interesting is that at the beginning, you co- you commented on the high-stakes accountability and you said that actually one of the things that is missing from our profession is professional respect and professional autonomy. And actually what he's given the staff in the school, from what you're saying, are those two things. He's given them professional respect and professional autonomy and said, I trust you. I trust you to do a good job. And that's what they're doing. Yes, yeah. And, and so his, and, you know, he 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 says that it's, you know, that it's not the case that so some people kind of, before the offset judgment, would, would regard the school as, well, you know, anything goes and it's very lax and et cetera. But, he you know he says himself that that's not the case at all you know we are very structured and we are you know we 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 create our own goals the difference is that the staff are happy here because their professional uh, autonomy and their professional judgment is respected and why should i question staff who have been trained and have been in the school for years what what you know who am i to question what they're doing if if they need help they will come and ask for help or they'll ask for help for from other professionals they don't need me to tell them what they you know they don't mean need me to tell them what they need Mm. they are they're only too well aware of their strengths and what needs to be developed uh but you can. Eat. I went to the school without the children there uh, uh, because um, I was travelling from the north. But even without the children there, the atmosphere in the school is remarkable, and everywhere are examples of, you know, the children's the children's work and creativity, and it's just a lovely environment to be in, and. Of course, that's what the teachers experience on a daily basis. 
I love that. I really do. And as you say, that's a chapter in your book. And what we will do for you, all of you listeners, is you'll be able to get Steve's book by clicking on the link in the blurb that we will attach to the podcast. Also, um, if you want to get in contact with Steve and his company about all the various bits that he does to support schools in really developing well-being, but also avoiding teacher burnout, we'll have all the links in the blurb for that as well. Steve, you've really helped me to understand why teacher burnout exists and what establishments can do in order to to counter it, really. I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm gutted that we, we haven't got longer to speak because I could speak to you for hours about this. But I'm going to finish with our final question, which is this. If you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Well... I've just mentioned Jeremy Hannay and mm. and yeah, I, I would love to have been taught by Jeremy because he because he looks after his staff so well, mm. then I know that if I was taught by him, the rest of the staff would also be as committed, as engaged, and I would be you know, I, I'd be taught by somebody who who has got lots of creativity, lots of ideas, lots of energy, but who is mentally healthy. And yeah. what I wouldn't like to the kind of teacher I wouldn't like to be taught uh, taught by, and which you know, to be honest, sometimes uh, I would fall into this category when I was teaching, is someone who is stressed, who mm. reacts very quickly to situations negatively who's you know irritable who has no patience because they are so tired that they can hardly you know move into the classroom never mind about create uh, a positive learning environment while they're there yeah and i think you know that there will be te- teachers listening to this that are have identified areas within that teacher burnout and they're thinking, yeah, actually I'm there, I'm there. And, you know, we go into the classroom all too often and we can feel that sort of, that that stress and that irritability, you know, and, and that then impacts on our young people. And you're absolutely right. So yes, yay for more Jeremy Hannays. I think he sounds absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming on Tiny Voice Talks and really unpicking teacher burnout for me and our listeners. You're very welcome. And I hope that I'll be able to come back at a, another point and perhaps share some of the uh, strategies that I see schools uh, using um, in a more detailed way to prevent teacher burnout and give the staff in their school the professional recognition that they deserve. I think that, sound, that sounds absolute definite. So that would be teacher burnout part two, listeners. <laughs> watch out for it. Thanks so much, Steve. You're very welcome.